0: Dr. Nick Wignall, thanks so much for joining today. Hey, on Yeah, of course. It's a pleasure to be here. So really excited to hear what you have to say. You were one of my uh, very early mentors before I even started on the psychology career path. And I still remember a presentation you gave about a career in psychology that was a big influence and in inspiring me to embark on it. And it's been cool following your progress. So just to give our listeners a little bit of an introduction, can you just talk a little bit? About yourself and uh, where you are right now.
1: Yeah, sure. So, my name is Nick Wignall. I'm a clinical psychologist and I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I've been here for the last seven years or so. I came here right after grad school, after finishing grad school. I did my graduate education at the um, University of Chicago and then University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, is where I got my PhD. Um, so, I came out here and I started practicing um, in a small group practice doing clinical work, mostly specializing in. Insomnia and anxiety, panic in particular. Um, so those were kind of two of, my, two of my things I spent a lot of time doing. And I just worked uh, one-on-one with folks doing individual therapy for, oh, let's see, about six years, I think. Um, and then I, more recently I've started working for, um, I work for a startup um, in the kind of corporate consulting space doing kind of well being and culture consulting um, with organizations and teams. Um, and then on the side of all that, I'm sure we'll get into this more. Um, I've been, I've had a blog and a newsletter for the last seven years and I do podcasting and videos and courses and workshops and all sorts of stuff, um, kind of on the topic of emotional health, broadly speaking. Um, so that's, I think that about kind of sums up at least kind of professionally. I have, I have a wife and four little kids, uh, out here in New Mexico. That's a big part of the, uh, big part of the story. Um, yeah, that's, that's a little bit about me.
0: Yeah, you have a beautiful family. I saw the picture on your website. You're really oh, blessed. That's, that's so true. I know. I know you're an excellent therapist. And uh, today, I want to focus on your non-clinical, your non-clinical professional career path, or at least outside of the uh, the specific like practice that you've been working with. Um, can, can you just walk us through the story of uh, how, how you started? I think it was with the blog, and then how it developed from there yeah
1: yeah for sure so I think um the most appropriate place to to talk about starting it is uh, frustration. I think that's that was kind of like the motivating I'm a psychologist here I am talking about emotions, no surprise, but um I think that really was kind of the impetus to start doing kind of extracurricular activities, so to speak, um, on the side of my professional work as a therapist and when I say frustration, it was kind of frustration with my field in general because I felt like we had you know, the field of mental health and psychology more broadly. Um, it's got a lot of, it's got a lot of problems and it's a relatively young field. So it's got a lot, a lot of room for growth, I think. Um, but over the last 100, 150 years, we've accumulated um, a lot of, I think, really helpful insights and practices that can help people with their emotional health. Um, but a lot of them are kind of locked behind therapists offices and then kind of in research labs and there's so many of these things that just could be really helpful outside of the clinical world. Um, but for whatever reason, I just didn't see them out there. A lot of what I saw when it comes to kind of um, general advice for mental or emotional health uh, was kind of um, lightweight, maybe is the, is the way to think about it. And then we had all these this really rigorous, solid uh, kind of uh, insights and again, techniques and practices in the clinical and the research world but they either were, literally weren't making it out at all into the into the public realm or they did but they were it was done in a way where they were too esoteric and obscure and and researchy and overly academic the form of them was so it was really hard i think for people to actually Understand Crock on and understand and, and see why it would be helpful. So anyway, that was just like really frustrating to me. I remember thinking when, when I first started working with insomnia clients, um, I didn't know anything about insomnia. I didn't study at all in grad school. I didn't do anything until I I got into this practice. And my boss was the he was the he was like the head editor for this journal, and he wanted someone to do a book review on this new book that was on a, a treatment for insomnia, a, a cognitive behavioral treatment for insomnia. And so he asked me to do it and I was like, well, I don't know anything about that, but it looks interesting. So I read the book and I was blown away (laughs) by this book, like so blown away that there was this incredibly effective treatment for insomnia that almost nobody knew about. I'd never even heard of it going through grad school in clinical psychology. And it was like the research showed like over and over and over again, it was remarkably effective, like way better than standard kind of like generic sleep hygiene tips or medication or like whatever the usual stuff people think of for insomnia. Anyway, so I got so interested in this. I was like, well, I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to start. I went to some conferences. I went, you know, took some workshops. I learned how to do this, this approach. And sure enough, it was wildly effective. Like so, so many clients I had, had suffered with insomnia for decades and within months, like gone. (laughs) cured like you don't use the, the the c word in mental health very often but like completely cured from and I, i'm just thinking to myself hey this is crazy like I, I was like excited like this is so wild that we can be so good at something because in mental health honestly like we're not that good at that many things like the, even our best a lot of our best approaches are somewhat effective for some people um so to have something that was like wildly effective for a lot of people was just really exciting. But then again, the like the frustration crept in, which was, this is nuts. That just <laughs> only people who have you know a diagnosis of insomnia who are coming in to see like a mental health professional who happens to know about this treatment, which is a tiny fraction. Most mental health professionals have never heard of CBTI or cognitive kind of behavioral therapy for insomnia. Um, I'm like, this is nuts. There's so many people with insomnia um, out there who would could easily benefit from just one or two of like the core pieces of this protocol for treating insomnia. Um and so again there there's that in me there's that frustration like this is stupid. <laughs> this is stupid that more people don't know about this and it's not that hard or it shouldn't be that hard. It doesn't seem that hard for me to kind of package this up in a relatively accessible way and say like hey here's this thing try this if you've got insomnia. Um so I sort of thought like what the hell? Like I'll start I'll start a blog, I guess that was like a thing people did. So I spun up a website and a newsletter and yeah, I just started writing articles about like, you know, what what is insomnia and how to overcome it and, you know, CBTI for insomnia or things about panic attacks and how panic worked and stuff like that. Um, and initially, you know, crickets, like I'd look at my analytics on my website and it was zero people have visited your website today. <laughs> and I'd send out my newsletter every week and it would go to 10 people, half of whom were uh, were family members. But I think I had that sort of Inner kind of drive again, largely driven by frustration. Like it just, I was like getting mad every single day (laughs) that this stuff wasn't more widely available. And so I think the combination of that frustration and I just really, I love, I think, you know, I I did therapy for a long time um, and I enjoyed doing therapy. But I think at heart I'm a teacher. Like I love explaining things and I love explaining things in emotional health, especially. And so writing about these things and trying to capture the, the, the substance of the, you know, what we know from research and practice, but in a way that's really accessible and appealing and, you know, anyone can sort of understand and take in. I just, I love doing that. Um, It was just really fun. So I've been doing it ever since basically. I started, I think in, uh, I think it was October, September, October of 2017. I sent my first weekly newsletter Um, And I haven't missed a week since. Been doing it ever since then. So sorry, I'm talking your talking your head off. But like, yeah, I think frustration. That was the that was the impotence at the beginning.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think the reason people like your newsletter blog is the same reason why you're such an engaging speaker. It's encouraging. It's cheerful. You get the positive energy from it. It's super clear, and it's just science science based content. So where. Uh, how many subscribers or viewers do you have now, and what did it take to grow to that
1: yeah so my my main metric is newsletter subscribers that's always been sort of my north star when i i don 't really care that much about social media um but newsletter subscribers for for one thing they're sort of uh you're working on kind of owned owned territory so to speak when you're building an audience on you know Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever. They're not your audience. Like some they, those companies can do something, change the algorithm, do something drastically different than your, you know, bummer, you know. <laughs> but if you've got people's, if people have given you their email address, that's a very intimate thing, right? And no, it's it's no one can really kind of like no company can take that away, right? You've always got this connection, this one to one connection um, with your audience. So, anyway, that that has always been my kind of main metric for what am I what am I going for when I am thinking about kind of building an audience broadly speaking. Um, and I have about fifty thousand. I just passed fifty thousand um, subscribers Congrats. on my on my newsletter. Thank you. Um, and it's pretty engaged. You know, I get like a between fifty and sixty percent open rates, um, which is which is pretty good. Um, and yeah, I get I get lots of people writing in and asking questions. And um, in fact, it's almost sort of turned into like an advice column because I get I get so many questions that I turn that into a segment of the newsletter, which is I pick one of the questions someone writes in. Um, and then do like a short essay kind of answering or trying to answer um, answer that question. So, yeah, that's about. It. And then your second part of your question, I guess, was what did it take to get there? Uh, I don't know. if you were to look at like the graph of my subscribers over the time, there's nothing particularly interesting about it. Like it doesn't there aren't any like huge leaps or like it's not like the hockey stick thing. It's just this kind of fairly linear kind of progression up and to the right. Um, and so, I think the, I mean, there's a million factors and we can talk about more specific ones that maybe are more interesting. Um, But I think if I had to say like the biggest one is just sticking with it. I think I found something that I have a knack for. Like, I I think I'm fairly good at it um, and it resonates for people. But I think more importantly, it's something that I just am really, I still get up like excited to like write my newsletter after eight years or whatever of doing it. I just have a lot of kind of internal intrinsic motivation to do that. I'm excited about it. Um, I'm frustrated that other people aren't doing it. And so I, yeah, I've, I've stayed in the game long enough to just sort of like accumulate, um, a decent size audience. So I think that's probably the most important
0: thing. Mm. So no particular kind of marketing strategies it just grew organically from the 10 people up to where it is now. Yeah. So I wouldn't say
1: I do like uh, capital M marketing at all. I do. So if you think about, well, like, where do I get subscribers? Um, I have for a long, for almost from the beginning, I have been, um, post reposting. So when I write an article, anything, it goes on my website, one of my two websites. Um, then I send out like a, a blurb, like a brief description of it and a link in my newsletter every week. And so people then jump over to the website to read my stuff, but I also, um, literally just kind of copy and paste the articles and i post them on medium which is a it's not exactly a social media platform um it's a little more like youtube like you you wouldn't necessarily call youtube a social media platform like you would twitter or facebook or something like that it's more like a content platform um anyway and long form writing is the is the thing on medium and so um i repost everything on medium because that gets me exposure to a much larger audience um and so i've been doing that again for seven or eight years now and so that has been a huge chunk um a huge percentage of my audience growth uh and then just sort of org- people finding me organically based on google you know if you write long enough and you write content that is fairly decent google sort of you know indexes it and prioritizes it shows it to people when when someone searches you know how do you, you know how to get rid of insomnia or something if you've written an article on insomnia that's 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 really high quality, it'll sort of bubble to the surface and people will find you that way. So those have been the two primary ways um, that people have come to me. And then I have always been very intentional about um, anywhere I am online, <laughs> I'm always linking people to my newsletter. So I have a uh, like a landing page on my website. that's like very simple. And it just says like, here's my newsletter. Here's what it's about. Put your email in and join the. That's what I want people to do. I want people to kind of get into my more intimate orbit um, on the newsletter. And then once they're in there. They can, you know, they get access to everything. They see everything. I can point them in different directions. And so that's always kind of been the the main, the main goal. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, sorry.
0: Long-winded answer to your question. No, no, this is excellent. This is excellent. Uh, so in terms of cost benefit, like cost would be uh, time, uh, which would include like the opportunity cost, what you could be doing with that time. Uh, and then the benefit would be, uh, yeah, what what is exactly the benefit? How would you uh, weigh the cost benefits of this?
1: Yeah you mean of just sort of having this as a site you know blogging writing teaching the whole thing um
0: yeah yeah cuz yeah. writing well takes time and as a as a therapist uh your your time is very valuable so i'm just wondering uh what what is the what is the benefit of it and how do you weigh that
1: yeah so let me okay i'll start with the benefits um the big one if i'm totally honest like is kind of selfish. Like I just like doing it in a weird way. It's it's like my hobby. Like I don't golf. Like I don't go. I don't go drinking at the bar with my buddies. Like I don't know whatever other things. I don't collect stamps. Um, but I do really like to write. And I like. I love. Um, I like to write. I love just sort of talking about emotional health. And and but mostly like I like teaching. Like I just really like doing it. Like you can ask my, my kids and my wife and my friends, I end up teaching <laughs> even when I'm not asked to, cause I just, I, I just love explaining things. I learn about something new and I can't help myself. But so um, the benefit is like, it's, it's my hobby. Like why do people do hobbies in general? Like, I don't know. It's enjoyable sense of progress. Like, I think we all, it's, it's one of those like most motivating things in life, I think is like having some sort of a project where you consistently feel like you're you're putting an effort and then making progress based on that, and for you know for a lot of us it's our jobs, our work could be could be hobbies, could be our sports league that we part like whatever. Like we like a sense of progress, and so that's certainly like just for me personally, like I get a strong sense of I like getting better at something and helping other people get better, and and getting the little reward from doing that like it just feels good to be sort of making progress whether that's seeing your subscriber count pop up or having more and more people write into you saying how helpful stuff was um i just like that just kind of selfishly it just feels good (laughs) um so that's that's one on that level and i say that because i think that's a little underrated there's other reasons and i'll get into those but um i think it's I think that's been a big part of the, at least the kind of sustainability of a project like this for me is this, I just have so much intrinsic motivation for it. Um, I, I almost couldn't not do it um, in a way. And then other things are like, um like socially, like the relationships I, I've built as a result of this have been incredible, like professional. I mean, yeah other all sorts of other mental health professionals that i've gotten to know over time either because i've had them on my podcast or i've met them on twitter and you know struck up a relationship friends i have a whole bunch of i, I joined this writing group early on in my writing career uh, most of whom are, are in europe and so i have this whole group of like european friends now <laughs> and we do you know we talk regularly and we meet up on zoom and we have a little chat group and all sorts so i've literally made friends um, doing it and then even professional opportunities I. A few years ago, I left my clinical practice because this, at the time, this random guy uh, read one of my articles, really liked it, and he was looking to start a company and he wanted a clinical, so he wanted a psychologist, someone with a research background and a psychology background on board. And he just cold e- emailed me out of the blue and said, hey, like, <laughs> let's talk. And so that literally led to a whole new job and even career potentially. Um, so stuff like that has been a huge. There's so much benefit, like relationally, I think, from a project like this. Um, and then the the other one that I would say is just f- kind of for my own, I don't know, um, sort of career and like financial future. I I always knew about myself that um, I, I'm I'm a fairly good employee because I'm I'm a pretty conscientious person, <laughs> but I have a personality such that. I really love doing things that I am really interested in. Like I, I will just work, you know, <laughs> to no end. Like I have no problem being disciplined and like working hard um, on something I'm really passionate about um, as evidenced by like this whole project. Like I just, I, it doesn't seem like work to me. It's, it's honestly just really fun and, and energizing, but I hate doing stuff that I'm not interested in. <laughs> like really hate it. Um, And, you know, I'm, I'm, again, I'm decent at being, I can kind of suppress that um, when I need to and and be a reasonably productive, conscientious employee. But I've always known about myself, that's probably not sustainable. Like eventually I want to be in a situation where I'm kind of calling the shots and I come from a family of entrepreneurs and um, tend to be around a lot of people like that anyway. So I think I've always known that that's somewhere off in the future. It wasn't immediately in the future you know, like eight years ago or whenever, when I started, um, I was just starting to become a therapist and I knew, you know, I, I wanted to really see what this was like and put in the reps and get good at it and learn a lot from it. And, um, so I was in no hurry to kind of go off and do my own thing, but I knew that eventually that was a place I wanted to get to. Um, and so I thought, well, this thing I like doing anyway, writing and teaching online, um, if I kind of build up a audience and a reputation and a skill set for doing this well, this could be the platform for me doing my own thing professionally later on. Um, So I think that's, yeah, that was a big, um, that's been a big uh, benefit. And I think we'll continue to be, um, we'll pay dividends, so to speak um, in the future. So that's a big one. Um, Downsides. You asked about downsides. Um, certainly time. Um, like you said, there's always opportunity costs, but if I'm, if I'm really honest, like I, I feel pretty good about this trade-off. Like, again, I like, I, I don't go golfing for three hours every weekend. Some people love to golf. Like maybe I would love something like that too, but I don't know. I feel like I have this thing I love. Um, so why it doesn't seem like it's worth trading that off just to go explore other things, um, that I'm have less certainty that i would love this much i think like it's it's a relatively rare thing to find kind of a a hobby or passion that you're that excited about and that you can invest that much time and energy into um and frankly i just don't like (laughs) time and energy are limited like i have my family and my career take up the vast majority of my time and energy and like i don't have that much space left for anything uh so my this fits really well for me as like a hobby or like a third thing. In the pie chart. And I'm just super satisfied with it so far. So, to be honest, I don't think a ton, I love the idea. And I think it's a really important thing to do to think about opportunity costs and trade offs. Um, but I think I feel pretty confident that there aren't any significant ones with this uh, at this point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're seeing it kind of like a hobby. And how, how mm-hmm. much time does it take for you to produce a good blog post? And is there any direct uh, financial? incentive?
1: Mm, How much time and is there a direct financial incentive?
0: Yeah. So I would say
1: in general, I'm a pretty quick writer. Uh, I think I've always been a relatively quick writer. And then having done this for so long, I've developed kind of a a format and a style of writing that I'm I'm pretty quick at. So I can write most of my articles are between maybe, I don't know, 1200 and 1800 words, something like that. And I can... (laughs) I can, I can draft the article in between an hour and an hour and 20 minutes probably. Um, and when I say draft, like it's 95% of the way done. I basically copy and paste it into Google Docs and spell check it <laughs> after that. Um, and, but I don't do like rewrites or stuff like that. Um, and that not because I'm opposed to that, um, but just the, the style of content I put out there is it, ha- it has this kind of casual, it has an element of it being casual. I'm not trying to write like the definitive guide to whatever or a research article or something like that. Like it's it's almost like an advice column, you know that you would that you would get that you would read, you know, back in the day. Um, So that helps. That makes it. I don't have to do a. And I'm writing about something. This I think this is key. I'm writing about topics that I spent close to a decade (laughs) talking about every single day with people. So when I go to write an article about insomnia or panic. or, you know, chronic worry or something like that, I've, the article is essentially like a version of a conversation I've had 500 times. <laughs> so just kind of spitting it out onto paper, I I, I write like a talk. And so to me, writing is like, it's almost like hopping on a podcast and someone says, so I, you know, I keep getting panic attacks, even though I've tried X, Y, and Z, like, what do you recommend? And like, I, as everyone listening now can tell, I can just sort of start gabbing and like go off the cuff about something like that um and i can i seem to be able to do that on writing just as you know just as easily as i do um in you know in visual or audio format it doesn't necessarily mean it's good <laughs> but um anyway so i think that's the i'm i'm a fairly fast writer um and then in terms of the direct there there isn't there isn't a super direct financial benefit to putting the articles out um the closest i get to a direct financial benefit is medium has a partner program much like youtube's partner program where if you um, if you're big enough if you generate enough views they'll pay you the will pay you some amount per per view essentially um so i at this point i built up a big enough audience to where that becomes a a pretty significant um number at the ever, at the end of every month um so for if you like averaged out over the last few years my earnings from the medium partner program remember i i write an article goes to my newsletter my website but then i repost it to medium right and so all on a given month, you know, I don't know, there's a bunch of those. And so I, I probably make between two and $5,000 a month from medium partner program earnings. Um, so that's a fairly direct, um, income generator, but, but really the more valuable thing with doing that is the newsletter subscribers I get because those people then come into my orbit and they can they can buy much more expensive things that I offer, so courses and workshops and stuff like that. Um, so, so it's kind of a twofer, right? You get the the you get new subscribers because people do read the article and then they they join my email list, and Medium pays me something um,
0: for basically giving them content um, for their platform. Okay, let's jump into these other offerings that you have. Uh, how mm-hmm. did they develop, and what's your vision with them? Yeah, um,
1: so other paid uh, kind of Mm -hmm. products or offerings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I do a few things. Um, I do, I do one-off workshops. So probably, I don't know, six or seven times a year, I'll do a 60 or 90 minute workshop over zoom. Um, and I only advertise it to my newsletter. I say, you know, the week before I'm like, Hey, I'm going to do a workshop on insomnia, or I'm going to do a workshop on how to communicate better with your spouse or whatever. I do all sorts of topics. And then yeah. I basically, I put together kind of a, it's usually a deck like a, um, and I, it's on a specific topic. And my goal for those is I want to teach one specific tool or, or like exercise or technique, right? So it might be, if I'm doing one on chronic worry and anxiety, I love my favorite technique or exercise in that, in that kind of domain. This is something called scheduled worry. Like it's a specific exercise you can do. And so I'll talk, I'll spend 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes describing what chronic and anxiety are, or like why they're a problem, whatever. I'll show this exercise and then I'll do like a, you know, 20 to 30 minutes for Q and A Q&A where people can ask questions. Um, and those are like, you know, th- I think 35 bucks. Um, so I want those to be pretty accessible. Like people, it's it's almost anyone could afford if they were interested in a particular topic, um, you know, 35 bucks. And then you get the recording and stuff like that afterwards. So that's, that's the workshops. Um, I the and I typically,
0: sorry? I'm sorry, I think you were about to say how many participants you get for that.
1: Yeah, so I I will often what do I I I end up getting I don't know, like I'd say around 50 maybe is my average. So I'll, some of them depending on the topic, if it's a more obscure topic, I make it 30. If it's a really popular topic, I might get 70 or 80. Um so it it depends a lot on the on the topic itself. Um, so yeah, so I do those and then I do um I do bigger courses and I basically have two types of courses. I have, um, standalone courses, my uh, current standalone course, or, uh, not standalone self paced, um, course. So it's a video course and you don't, there's no live component. You just, you purchase the course and then you work through the videos and the exercises and stuff at, at your own pace, whatever you want. It's, it's like me talking like this. And there's usually graphics I'm showing, you know, visualizations, graphics and stuff too. Um, and so I have one, my, my current one that I'm really working on is called Creating Calm. Um, and it's about chronic worry and anxiety um, and how to address chronic worry and anxiety. So that one is, that's $150. So it's more expensive, um, but it's also much more comprehensive. So the workshops are like a tiny slice. It's like, I'm going to teach just one thing. Um, this course is much more, it's like, it's everything I think, it's not everything there is to know about chronic worry and anxiety, but it's my kind of like complete playbook for. If you struggle with this, here are like the most important things that if you do this, you're you're like ninety percent of the way there. Um, so that and it's yeah, it's relatively comprehensive. Um, and then so that's a self paced course, and then I do I have for about four or five years I've been doing a live um, what are called uh, what's called a cohort based course, which is once or twice a year I take, um usually 30 maybe 40 at the most students in a given um cohort um into a a course on emotional resilience um so it's kind of again like my sort of framework or approach for how do you in a healthy way how do you deal with any difficult emotion right whether it's anxiety whether it's uh, jealousy anger like whatever it is so it's sort of like my it's almost like my kind of overall kind of philosophy and approach to, um, emotional health and resilience in particular. Um, so anyway, I could go into the details of that, but that's, that's more expensive and it's more, it's more of a commitment. Um, so that's, so I think $350. Um, and it's, it's usually, I run it over the course of four or five weeks and it, the way it's structured is there's like a couple live sessions a week where I'm on zoom with people. Um, teaching and people can ask questions. Um, one of them is like a workshop, so where I'm doing a lot of active teaching, and then the second session is usually like an office hours. People can do Q and A and stuff like that. And then there's kind of self-paced lessons that people do on their own and exercises that they do throughout the week. And we, over the course of like five weeks, we kind of work through this curriculum. Um, I think those those are the big. What am I missing? Are you on my website? <laughs> I can't tell what I, I might be missing something. I think those are the big ones though.
0: Yeah, those are the ones I recall from the website. Okay. How many people do you have typically for the self-paced course?
1: Oh, how many? Let's see. I launched... I will pull it up here and tell you. I think... Done. I I launched... A, so I launched a new... I had an older course on chronic worry, and I launched this newer one um, on kind of chronic worry and chronic anxiety, generally speaking. And I have had... I launched it in October, and I think I've had about, oh gosh, sorry, I can't find the exact number, um, but I, I think it's maybe 300, yeah. 400 students, something like that um, so far. Now, admittedly, that's there was a, a lot like at the launch. Anytime you launch something, there's always a huge spike mm-hmm. there and then kind of there. But the, the idea with that one, hopefully, is that it will be a sort of a, a steady kind of beat of not tons of people, but this is something that it's available to buy anytime. So it'll be kind of a, a continual. Um, and that that's partly because for me, like it's nice to have, I have a source of income that's much more time dependent, like the, cor- the live course, Mood Mastery, which is very, you know, a big chunk once or twice a year. But this hopefully will be more kind of a, a more steady um, source. But then it's also nice to have content that people can purchase immediately, right? Instead of having to wait for the my live course which i only do once or, or twice a year um, mm-hmm. so that's part of the reason for for doing that too
0: yeah you're, you're reaching people at different at all different levels of accessibility both in terms of time commitment and uh, the financial cost yeah uh, so that's great i mean, just going to your mission of just getting these ideas out there to help the most people that's wonderful yeah uh, wh- where does the podcast fit into all this what inspired it what's the purpose of it
1: oh the podcast <laughs> <laughs> um i i i say that wistfully because i I've, it's been on a little bit of a hiatus i started it uh, like everyone else in the world i started a podcast during covid when COVID first started off. um and i guess the the, the imp- okay if i'm if i'm being totally honest the impetus was like i like podcasts and i think it'd be kind of fun and cool to start a podcast like it was that uh, selfish and short-sighted probably <laughs> um and it obviously fit within the kind of generally speaking, what I do. It was it's like another kind of, um, in addition to my articles and my classes and courses and stuff. This is like another way people could kind of learn, and something that was like a little bit less me, right? In, in the in the podcast, I do it's more. I want to highlight and ask questions of other kind of interesting people in psychology, emotional health, um, that kind of space generally. So, yeah, and I guess the idea with those is just. To, to find interesting people uh, with interesting ideas and and also to kind of ask them, yeah, ask them. The, I sort of think about the podcast is I get this book on, you know, someone sends me a book on, you know, some new approach to managing anger. Right. I'm like, okay, cool. So I read the book and I'm like taking notes. And when I take notes, I'm often, I'm like, I'll ask little questions like, oh, well, this sounds okay. But like, what about this? You know? And I always wish like, wouldn't it be cool if you just ask the author, you know? (laughs) So that's, that's the idea of the podcast. Like I, I read a book I really like. I'm like, okay, this person sounds cool. Like, let me get them on the show. And I'm going to go through the book and find the like, I don't know, five to 10 questions that I thought were really interesting from their work or from their article, an article they wrote or whatever. And I'm just going to ask them the questions I'm kind of curious about. and want to ask about them. So again, it's a little, the theme here, it's a little bit selfish in that I, I only interview people that I'm kind of interested. There's a lot of people who, frankly, I'm sure my audience would be potentially interested in, but if I'm not interested in it, I'm, you know, it's, that's, t- it's too much of an investment for me to put into it. If I'm not really interested in it because doing a podcast is actually a lot of work. (laughs) Um, It takes between, I'm sure you know, but especially for this type of, this type of podcast, it was, you're, you're reading the book, you're researching their other stuff. You're kind of formulating the questions and it, yeah, anyway, it's, it's, it's a lot and you're editing and post-production and all that kind of stuff. So um, that's part of why it's, it's been on a bit of a hiatus lately is I just didn't have time for everything and something had to go. And so the podcast was, the thing to go, but I do hope to resurrect it um, at some point because it is very challenging, but also really, really fun. Like I just really enjoy, it. and my audience loves it. They're, you know, I'm always getting people writing in saying, "Bring back the podcast." Um, so hopefully, one day.
0: <laughs> How big is your podcast audience?
1: Oh man, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm totally honest. I, can, I mean, it was doing it was doing pretty well. Um, that's all I remember is that I felt I felt like I was like reasonably pleased with it. Um, but yeah, I have I have no clue at this point and i haven't i haven't released a new episode in probably a year and a half um okay. so it's i'm sure it's not doing amazingly well but uh-huh. but i also i feel like it's the kind of thing where if i if and when i do decide to kind of reinvest in it um it you know i could i'm i feel pretty confident that i could get some good traction um because there's already an established base there and yeah
0: yeah so given uh, that these things take time and there's uh an administrative load to it do you involve other people in, in helping you, administrative assistants or specialists of the technology or anything else?
1: No, I've flirted with this from time to time, like bringing on. I I, I thought about bringing on like an editor because I'm I'm I think I'm a pretty good and, and fast writer, but I'm a terrible proofreader. <laughs> like I just don't, I don't care enough about it. Um, so I've thought about that. Um, and at various other times, I've kind of considered this kind of stuff, but. I'm probably just too picky at this point. Like I, it feels like it's, I guess at this point it feels like the amount of work it would take to find someone, train someone, and then deal with, if people leave like you got to find someone else and train someone else, the kind of expected benefit of having someone to help probably isn't there. And luckily for a lot of the technical stuff, I'm fairly technically savvy. So like putting up websites and dealing with tech issues and, you know, editing podcasts and all that kind of stuff like i'm i'm good enough at that for now um if this thing became bigger i would probably definitely consider hiring out at least kind of contract um type help for that but no at this point it's it's just me <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: what's your vision for your professional growth
1: own, for my own professional growth or for like the the work itself um or maybe the, maybe it's the same question. I don't know. Like, are you more interested in, like, my personal kind of professional trajectory? Or where is, like, the newsletter and the blog and stuff going to be in the future?
0: Huh. Uh, I think I was originally thinking uh, the second one. But I, mm-hmm. I, now that you bring it up, I'd be very interested in the first as well.
1: Okay. Well, let me, uh, I'll have to think more about the second one. So let me answer the first one and then maybe a, a flash of insight will come about the, <laughs> about the first one. So in terms of like the work, like, where do I want it to be? Um, again, like, I think that I, I write a lot, people know me best as a writer, but I think, and I've been a therapist. Um, so I've been kind of a, a coach, you know, and, like in the broad sense of the word therapy is kind of like coaching. Um, but I think the, really I'm a teacher. Like I love teaching. Like I said, I love explaining things. Um, and so I think ultimately, I, I would, you can sort of see the outlines of it now, but I would like to have sort of an online school that is, okay, okay. yeah, it's a school for learning about emotional health. Like one of the things I hear over and over and over again from all sorts of people, whether it's newsletter readers writing in after reading a good article, or especially students having gone through my courses are, it's like, damn i should have learned this in sixth grade like why why are we teaching this stuff uh when kids are young um instead of having to like go through all the stuff and then learn about it after the fact and um so i not that i necessarily want to teach kids although that would be wonderful i'd have partners someone like that um for that but i just i love the idea of having a a school it doesn't have to be not a physical school necessarily i love kind of the online virtual world for all sorts of reasons um But just a place where um, people can come to learn about their own psychology and emotional health and um, the kind of emotional side of personal growth um, is a lot of the way I describe what I do. And so that could um, continue to be me on some level, just writing advice columns and teaching stuff. But ultimately, I think the other thing I would like to do more of, too, is bring in other people, other voices um, to kind of do more of that. But that's hard, because again, I'm pretty picky. (laughs) And most of the stuff I encounter in the space of kind of psychology and emotional health, I'm either I flat out don't like it, um, or I think it's, it's not substantive enough, or it's not, um, I worry about uh, sharing a lot of the stuff I see out there with my audience. Cause I just, I don't feel like I can support it fully. So finding people who I feel really confident, like this, this person, um, Johan, yes, bring him in uh, he's a solid dude. That's hard. Like curating the appropriate person for my kind of vision is that's mm-hmm. something that would take a lot, that would take a lot of time and, and effort. But I think ultimately it's something I would, I would love to do. Um, and even just selfishly. Cause I, I just love learning, um, from all sorts of people. And, um, so anyway that, yeah. So I think that's kind of the kind of the vision. Um, and then for myself personally, where, where do I go? Like, I'm just, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of like a learning junkie. Like I'm one of those people who could, <laughs> if I if I was like, obscenely rich and had a huge trust fund or something i would probably just be a perpetual student because i just love like learning from people (laughs) um like i used to love in in grad school going to grand rounds which are if people aren't familiar grand rounds are um you they're especially common in, in like medical schools um but every week let's say wednesdays somebody you know it could be someone from the faculty gives a like a 30 minute talk say on their little like research specialty and then there's like a 30 minute Q&A afterwards where you can like ask questions and just learn and anyone can attend right you don't have to be a neurosurgeon you can just go to this neurosurgeon's talk and like listen and learn about his little or her little kind of you know niche in neurosurgery and then sometimes they invite they'll invite people from other schools and places to come in um and give talks and so you get exposure to people from all over the place so it's this wonderful like kind of mixture of collegiality and learning, but it's also a little bit casual. It's not as kind of like stuffy as, as academia academia typically is. Um, So I just, I love that. Like, I just want to be around that all the time. So (laughs) I hope my professional growth involves more and more being in situations like that, Um, whether it's me participating in someone else's thing like that or me kind of facilitating or creating um, an environment like that. I just, I love that. That's my that's my jam. That that kind of environment.
0: What a noble vision to have this online school where you can help even more people. Uh, in addition to having more course instructors, what do you think is the one thing that you would need to make this happen?
1: Um, the one thing I would need to make it happen. Gosh, uh, time. Like I think there's the last few years have, have demonstrated there's there's enough interest in it, um, but I think there's just a lot of kind of experimentation and revision to like kind of figuring out what works i mean i am constantly when i run my course for instance like every single time i run it i'm i'm ch- slightly changing up the curriculum or the format of the course based on the feedback and figuring out what works or i'm kind of piloting when i do workshops i'm part of why i do that is to kind of test out like what areas are people interested in? I mean, my articles do that, but when you ask someone to pay for something, even a small amount, it's a much better test of like, what are people really interested in, right? If they're Because if they're willing to hand over some cash for something, that suggests there's a lot of motivation there. Um, so I think it, it it just needs time to kind of, for all of that to, to kind of foment and then settle into a coherent, because that's the thing, it, it has to be something that, I'm interested in, people are interested in, but it has to be a, um, like, a, it has to work as a business model too. Like it has, I, I would want it to be sort of self-sufficient financially as well. So I think that's kind of the, the challenge and the fun of doing something like this is kind of making it work both as a, um, a, you know, a service, I guess, to people. Um, but also as a, as a business that can sustain itself and, and me and my family potentially and something like that. So I, I feel like I just need more time to kind of, iterate and experiment, um, and figure it out. Well, we wish you all the best with that. And where
0: can people find you and your work?
1: Let's see a few places. I have my personal website is nickwignall.com. Um, and there I, I recently have started kind of dividing up some, some of my content goes there. Uh, more of my kind of essays go there. And then I have a, my new, I, I recently rebranded or about a year ago, I rebranded my, newsletter to what the friendly mind is like kind of the, the brand it's like the idea for the newsletter um and so the, there's a website that goes along with it where all the articles and um, reader questions and stuff like that are so the friendlymind.com um, and that new, the newsletter is really the best place because that's whatever i'm up to whatever i'm my newest stuff you just get a little a nice friendly email on monday morning um with all my stuff and you can kind of skim through it pretty quickly and find what's interesting or um or not so yeah those are the two places i think
0: Excellent. Well, keep up the good work, Nick. And thanks so much for joining. Yeah. Thanks, Johan.